there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 9, Hitting the Big Time. Last week, we covered the climatic event of the early fascist movement in Italy with the March on Rome. Benito Mussolini, the son of a poor blacksmith, had assumed the position of prime minister with the king's backing. Now came the inevitable challenges of success. The takeover had critically undermined the old liberal order, but had not swept it away completely. The fascists, as a party, were actually still a minority in government, and Mussolini was technically leading a coalition. To maintain a legitimate majority in parliament, the fascists were going to need to actually govern, and disrupting law and order might now actually be perceived as a bad look, or at least have some negative repercussions. Of course, that didn't stop some last-minute score settling. The local fascist boss in Turin, Caesar Maria di Vici, decided to crush the heart of socialist Italy. The pretext was a pair of fascists being killed by a communist. In response, De Vici and his boys burned down the local trade union headquarters and tore up some leftist social clubs in a newspaper office. Socialists were rounded up and faced execution. One was dragged behind a truck, one was beaten to death. Twenty-two overall were dead by the end of this spasm of local violence. Mussolini, though, was not terribly pleased by this. He had just won a major victory, but now had to double back and rein in his own men again. Given the way this sort of disciplining had gone in the past, you can be sure he was anxious to be a little more successful this time. Now that he was leading the nation, it was critical that his authority of command not be challenged. So, Mussolini forced the Mussolini's squads to do the thing that they hated most. He made them go legit. On February 1st, 1923, they were officially organized into the Voluntary Militia for National Security, or the MVSN for short. Now they were a real paramilitary organization with a clear chain of command leading up to the fascist party and ergo to Mussolini. They weren't just a massive ad hoc gang centered around street fighting anymore. Now they had the full backing of the state and became a 300,000 strong army, who at the very least pledged their allegiance to Mussolini. They would be expected to maintain the new public order and ensure that the disturbances of the past two red years would not be repeated. This really didn't sit well with the local Ross, as this pretty directly ripped away their freedom of action and also deliberately left out their declared mission statement of forcing through revolutionary change in the country. Before, they acted largely on their own initiative, and there really weren't any rules that hindered them, even within the fascist hierarchy. Now they were one big group who were expected to march to the drum coming from Rome. Another thing that disquieted the Ross was that this change was justified as a policy to maintain the power the fascists had seized so far. The issue with that is, while Mussolini was certainly happy as a clam about the past few months, it hadn't really changed a whole lot in Italy on the ground. Remember, a lot of the rank and file had joined up with a revolution in mind. Now it was started dawn on a lot of those so-called fascists of the first hour. That wasn't really going to happen or at least not with the expected zeal and violence which they had advocated. Now they would have to work with the Italian state instead of against it. This brings me to Mussolini's handling of the government overall in these early days of his regime. He was clearly angling for total power, but now that he had barged into the halls of government, he was going to play ball and put on a show of legality. His first goal was trying to normalize fascism and make it a lot less of an outsider movement. 
folding of the black shirts into the MBSN is an example of that. Not that anyone was ever in any doubt as to where things were really going. Mussolini's first address to the Parliament was basically a warning that he could have dismantled that body if he had chosen to do so. But instead, he decided to be that magnanimous and work with all the other parties. Not because he wanted a peaceful outcome, not because he thought that a multi-party system would work, but because he was offering all the others a chance to show that they could be loyal to the Italy he was making, which of course meant he was giving them a shot to shift their allegiance to himself personally. This idea was demonstrated when he assembled his cabinet of ministers. A strong majority actually weren't fascists at all, with the bulk of the posts filled by a variety of distinguished figures from the old liberal order. This in turn assuaged the fears of much of the PPI, who were pleased at the continuity. The old guard took it as a sign that he would govern with their consent, and thus went along with his leadership. But Mussolini was already taking steps to undercut that old order, now that it had been lured in. Mussolini himself was a workaholic who had a habit of intervening directly into bureaucratic affairs. And from this point onward, ministries could expect a lot more oversight from their boss compared to government's past. Another move was in building up the fascist party into a proper institution. As part of his policy of legitimizing the previously ad hoc fascist party, Mussolini pushed the idea of a formal leadership council within the, within the group. On January 1st, 1923, the Fascist Grand Council was established. This body was composed of all the leading fascist figures, and would be similar to the party congresses that had been held in the past. They determined internal party appointments, and also weighed in on where the party stood on the various issues of the day. This last bit is important, as the council's deliberations were usually dominated by Mussolini himself, and when they came to agreement on a piece of legislation or policy, it would be presented to Parliament to provide a rubber stamp approval. This system was a rather handy way for Mussolini to secure his power around himself personally. The parliament was powerless in practice to resist fascist demands at this point. The king had abandoned them pretty hard by this point, and they had no ability to force Mussolini to comply with their wishes. The fascist party, on the other hand, couldn't force through laws on their own, which meant that the party could not challenge its master. Everything had to go through Mussolini, so neither the leadershipless state or the outside-looking-in party could afford to get rid of him. This dual system kept Mussolini in place long enough that he was able to get a better hold on the reins of power, and thus also began to expand his influence outside the narrow fascist base. By mid-1923, the fascist party itself had swelled to 800,000 members as the inevitable opportunists started to hop on the bandwagon. The socialists themselves weren't really a threat anymore at this point. They still had their supporters and parliamentary seats, but with the MVSN, a legal army roaming the streets and countryside, they could take little organized action. And it was clear the window for revolution had largely slammed shut. In February 1923, he also moved against secret societies, like the Masons, which was also ironic because a lot of his Ross had actually become Masons now that they had moved up in the world and he began trying to root out the infamous Italian Mafia. The campaign against the Mafia wasn't terribly effective, but it provided good PR in the rest of Italy that he was a hands-on guy who was committed to re-establishing law and order. Yes, it's ironic because he did so much to undermine that law and order, but liberals had a tendency to overlook crimes from just a few months past in an effort to just make things go back to a facsimile of normal. 
A sort of big move also came in March, when Mussolini secured the merger between the fascists and the nationalists. I haven't really mentioned the nationalists at all, and I'll be honest, their base of support was even more paltry than the fascists. They represented a more watered-down version of authoritarianism based on national tradition and patriotism, without the grand promises of national reform and rejuvenation, or the futurist-influenced ideas of an upended society. Differences aside, they didn't have anywhere else to go now that the entire far right was solidified under Mussolini's leadership, and the 80,000 blue shirts were merged into the MVSN. Yes, they were called blue shirts. Keep in mind that on the political color spectrum, blue was usually associated with the conservatives, and red with the left. The fascists went with black because they thought it was cool. The merger with the nationalists was not universally popular with the fascists, who looked on the new guys with suspicion. After all, the nationalists hadn't partaken in the national uprising at the end of 1922, and certainly didn't take the risks associated with it. Nor did they really believe in the revolutionary spirit of the fascist movement. But now they were supposed to be all buddy-buddy. The merger worked just fine for the regime at the moment, though, as this somewhat divisive move opened some doors for fascism in the south of the country, where the nationalists derived much of what support they did have. I have discussed the fascist movement mostly as being one contained to the north and center of the country, with the traditional social forces of patronage and poverty thwarting widespread adoption of the edgy new political ideology down south. Most of the fascists there were younger, with no networks of patronage or resources to dole out to create one. Yeah, they talked a big game about remaking the nation, but that type of thing didn't put bread on the table or buy support. But now, the local patrons, many of whom were conservative and who had paternally looked after the average people, started seeing which way the wind was blowing. These guys were active politically, really to the extent that their chosen representative kept the doors of power at the national level open to them. And by doors of power, I mean the access to federal-level funding and contracts. So, it was only natural that instead of throwing up a big stink about the change in administration, they instead worked to come to an accommodation, first directing their chosen representatives to work with Mussolini in Parliament, and before long, actively identifying themselves as part of the fascist movement. But don't think just because these elites started switching political affiliations that it changed anything as to how they operated in their own personal fiefdoms back home. They kept to their old ways and maintained their own local controls via managing economic activity, making local appointments, and doling out government funding at their own discretion. I mentioned Mussolini making a show of rooting out the mafia and it not being terribly successful. Well, this is part of why it wasn't all that successful. Local notables just started playing at being fascist publicly to keep Rome off their backs. Mussolini himself was well aware of this. A good indicator is that he continued an old liberal practice of keeping southern politicians in charge of various ministries related to infrastructure, which allowed those politicians' bosses back home to hand out jobs, both real and imagined, to their people. This compromise would secure much of the country politically, albeit at the cost of regime control over much of the South being far less total than what Rome claimed. While Southern notables mostly paid lip service to the fascist ideal, at this stage there simply wasn't a good way to break them up or force them towards becoming true believers. It was easier just to leave them to their own devices in exchange for support and good behavior. 
That isn't to say every Southern notable decided to go along with the regime. In fact, several from down south decided to be vocal opponents of Mussolini while in Parliament. The response was usually pretty simple. Mussolini would simply cut off the opponents' access to government jobs and favors and shift them elsewhere. This broke up the opponents' network of patronage and therefore their base of power. Why he never tried doing this in a systematic manner to get a firmer grip is a good question. But Mussolini is going to have an obsession with public opinion. He was constantly nervous about his regime's stability, and was not terribly aggressive about attacking local power centers as long as they went along with him. Another big political win came in June 1923, as Mussolini succeeded in dealing with the Catholics. From the start of the year, he had been making overtures directly to the Vatican about reaching an accommodation. Remember that the liberal governments had been by and large contemptuous of the Church, and the Vatican reciprocated those feelings. Since Italian unification, the papacy had either been hostile or borderline hostile to the Italian government, still stinging from the loss of the papal states in central Italy, and the contempt a lot of politicians still held for the church's leadership. And while Mussolini seemed an unlikely partner, as he had up to this point been anti-clerical and atheistic, he also could see a PR opportunity just sitting there, especially with the PPI holding such a large share of parliamentary seats. Cozying up to them seemed a no-brainer or at least the conservative bloc within that party. See, the PPI itself was split pretty hard in how it wanted to approach the fascists. This was a political party with very loose leadership that ascribed to a vague ideology that allowed for traditional left- and right-wing politicians to coexist together. Naturally, the right-wing of the party was totally okay with throwing in with Mussolini, while the left-wing was more resistant, what with the open violence and anti-Catholic element that were prominent features of fascism to this point. Mussolini cut through this problem by going straight to the Vatican and giving them concessions on education, effectively making the church partners in the schooling of Italian kids. The Vatican readily agreed, which meant that the PPI kind of had its collective mind made up for it. To oppose Mussolini's policies now would mean that they would oppose pro-Catholic legislation. The chasm between the right and the left of the PPI was increasingly wide open, as the conservatives were unwilling to go against both Mussolini, who they supported anyway, and the Vatican, which, uh, yeah, that checks out. As it would turn out, all it would take was one big legislative move to totally break the PPI apart and secure Catholic support. That big move came in July 1923. I've hammered home just how minimal the fascist presence in Parliament was, and it was something that Mussolini couldn't ignore in the long term. If somebody actually grew a spine and managed to successfully pitch a power change to the king, who, mind you, still controlled the army, and commanded the loyalties of many Italians, Mussolini could be in real trouble. So, a radical piece of legislation was proposed by his number two in Parliament, Giacomo Acerbo. The so-called Acerbo Law proposed that the party with the largest share of votes, provided a 25% threshold was passed, would then be entitled to two-thirds of the parliamentary seats. The remaining one-third would be doled out to the remaining political parties based on their shares of the vote. Given that the dual forces of bandwagoning fascists and the MVSN being right there at the polling places, the outcome of the election would be assured. You would think that everybody else would look at this for exactly what it was and make every move to stop it. Well, you would be wrong. It was in fact debate over this law that wound up splitting the PPI and removing the biggest political bloc as a potential obstacle. 
The right wing of the PPI was all in favor of it, as by this time, Mussolini was demonstrating he was willing to work with conservatives in exchange for absolute political power that carried with it the Vatican's blessing. The left wing of the party naturally opposed this as it would mean an end to their influence. The PPI was so racked by internal division, the final decision was made among the party that their entire group, both left and right, would abstain and simply go along with the outcome. The conservative wing broke that agreement within their own party and voted in favor of the law when the time came. This caused a cycle of condemnation, with most of the conservatives in the PPI leaving the party and joining with the fascists. Mussolini's promise of keeping the parliament open solely for the purpose of finding out who would stand with him was being made good on. You might ask about the liberals and what they thought of all this. Well, they were busy fooling themselves. The overriding goal of the liberals was to not rock the boat too hard, and they still operated under the assumption that the fascists could be co-opted to work purely within the existing political system, and over time become acclimated to it. Basically, the reasoning was that the more time the fascists spent as politicians, the more they would become politicians, until finally they would settle down and become just like them. This seems hopelessly naive in retrospect, but it might be worth keeping in mind that they were in, in uncharted waters without any means of control. Unable to raise their own private army and with no protectors, they could only hope against hope that the fascists would see their version of reason. We know they didn't, but that was the hope. On the ground, the fascist party was also making moves to further consolidate and expand their influence. With Mussolini in power and the MVSN formed as a legal mechanism of public order, local prefects started getting in on the act. They moved to dissolve town councils and other associations across the nation, consolidating state power at the town level. And with this being done in the name of national policy and with the backing of a virtually unopposed MVSN, it was all accomplished mostly through the threat of force. There was still some violence, but it was done more and more out of sight than in the streets during broad daylight. Repression of non-fascist groups was steadily done by decree, with the victims knowing full well the viciousness that would come down on them if they chose to resist. This also included tearing away at workers' unions and associations. Fascists already had formed their worker syndicates in order to provide labor and organized voice within the movement, and workers were encouraged to organize through those channels instead of through the traditional unions. This was a comparatively slow process, however, as many of the larger trade unions held together through sheer numbers and clung to the condition that any cooperation on their part with the regime would be predicated on free association and getting the MVSN off their backs. This lack of control was anathema to the empowered Mussolini, and he remained at an impasse with major sections of the labor movement for the time being. The ordering of the economy and the workforce was going to be a source of much wrangling within the regime, but for right now, there were more pressing concerns for Mussolini. In November 1923, Parliament had ended its deliberations and passed the Acerbo Law. The Socialists were the only coordinated opposition to the law, and it was far from enough to stop it. The way was now clear for total fascist control of Parliament, as the next election was set for April 1924, a scant six months away. To organize the inevitable, Mussolini started putting together a list of candidates that would stand for the fascist party. This caused a rush of defections from the other political parties as they scrambled to join with the fascists and get a place on that list. Keep in mind that when the fascists won, 
they would get at least two-thirds of the parliamentary seats, with everybody else having to split the other third. This was the culmination of Mussolini's strategy of division. Many politicians had sought to work with Mussolini without joining his party directly. Now, to maintain their political careers, they were forced to give up the ghost and enroll as fascists, and hope that the council's leadership would allow them to stand for their old seats in their new party. With the new electoral changes made, plus the scale of political intimidation, the fascists netted 65% of the vote and 70% of the parliamentary seats. It should be noted that even under these conditions, 35% of the country still turned out to vote against Il Duce. So now we are in the spring of 1924, and Mussolini has a solid grasp on power. But there is still time for one last act of self-defeating violence coming up that would momentarily undermine the authority the fascists were desperately trying to build up. I really haven't painted a very flattering picture of the Italian parliament so far. Before the march on Rome, it was a chaotic and unproductive body that governed only with difficulty. After the march, they were a tool for Mussolini to gather legitimacy and control access to political power in regards to his own subordinates. The king couldn't even be bothered to stand up for the group, even in the face of Mussolini challenging his primacy. It was that dysfunctional. But there was vocal and open opposition to Mussolini in that group, and his biggest critic was Giacomo Mattiotti, a socialist. Mattiotti was one who, regardless of the danger, would publicly and loudly challenge Mussolini's hypocrisies and the the unlawfulness of his government. This made him a champion of the opposition, but as time went on, it also made him an obvious target. On May 30, 1924, Mattiotti made a long speech detailing the fraud of the April elections and the violence of the fascist government, capping his hour-long speech with a call that the election be declared invalid. On June 10th in Rome, Mattiotti was dragged into a waiting car, in full view of witnesses, mind you, by an American-born Italian by the name of Amerigo Domini. He was born in St. Louis, but like other immigrants or descendants of immigrants, he had decided to go to his ancestral homeland before World War I. He was another war veteran who had actually lost a hand during that conflict and had established himself as being a reliable and enthusiastic thug for Mussolini. He was also an early member of the emerging secret police of the fascist state. Mattiotti's body was eventually discovered on August 16th, almost two months after his abduction. Domini had been given his orders by the Tuscan Ross Cesare Rossi, but everybody knew it was Mussolini. Historians could not confirm that he gave the direct order, and even offered up the idea that the thugs were just intending to kidnap Mattiotti, rather than kill him as a sign that they were acting without Il Duce's knowledge. It's a flimsy explanation at best, as the men directly involved were not individually powerful people who could expect to get away with that big of a murder. And while Rosie himself was powerful, events later would reveal that according to him, he was given the order directly from the top. And it wasn't like Mussolini was surprised that his biggest political opponent got packed into a car and banished. In any case, the whole thing immediately blew up in Mussolini's face, as there was both political and popular uproar. Everything had been going pretty great for Mussolini so far, so he kind of got a little panicky as events started accelerating again, but this time, not according to his plan. Almost 150 members of Parliament joined together in what was called the Aventine Succession, a name chosen to invoke the violent resistance to Julius Caesar, and withdrew from Parliament and declared their resistance to the fascist government. Murdering normal people in the street? That's all fine. But murder a politician? 
Well, that appears to have been the final and very telling straw that broke the camel's back. The politicians were sure that given the circumstances, the king would intervene and appoint a new prime minister to replace the current regime. There was the additional wrinkle that for once international opinion might matter, as an opposition politician being abducted off the streets and murdered was not a good look for the leader of a great power. Once again, though, Mussolini took a crisis as a golden opportunity to solidify his regime. First, he drew up MVSN units to ostensibly keep public order. In reality, he was sending a message to everybody that there was a reason there had been no large-scale parliamentarian opposition up to this point. This also served as a message to the king that if he did move against Mussolini, that there would be a civil war, except this time the fascists were far more integrated into the Italian state than they had been a year and a half ago. The king was faced with the same situation as before. There was no viable leadership alternative to Mussolini that was acceptable to the crown. The king still had no stomach for a civil war and simply ignored the Aventine bloc's appeal for him to intervene. Mussolini also took this chance to solidify himself among the fascists as well. He publicly declared that he would start rooting out the more unlawful sections of the party. He removed old hands like de Bono and Balbo from national positions. While these guys would return to leadership roles in the state soon after, they would do so only under Mussolini's auspices. Rosie, though, would be the leader marked out to take a permanent fall, and he fled abroad, never again to regain his former influence. He eventually came back to the country, but was imprisoned for the duration of the fascist regime's existence. For Amerigo Domini, the man who had led the group in the actual killing, well, he was put on trial, with only the secretary of the fascist party, Roberto Farinacci, coming forward to defend him. He was found guilty, sentenced to five years, and was released after one at the behest of Farinacci. He won't factor into our story, but he led kind of a depressingly long and exciting life. He filed an account of his murder, Mattiotti, with a notary in Texas, so that he always had an embarrassing bombshell ready for release, just in case the fascists decided to get rid of him. So instead, they sent him to Italian Somalia, where he made enough of a nuisance of himself that they simply paid him to leave there. He wound up in Libya, and was captured when that colony fell to the British during the war. He was tried as a spy and faced a firing squad, but somehow survived the volley of bullets. I'm not sure how that worked. He was left for dead, but he recovered enough to make his way to Tunisia, and from there back to Italy. You can well imagine the leadership's reaction to their one-handed, bullet-ridden old friend when he showed back up. But instead of just finishing him, they paid him off again, and he tried to settle down. He was imprisoned for life by the new Italian government after the war, but was granted a pardon in 1953. He died on Christmas Day, 1967. I have a feeling he never learned a valuable lesson. Well, anyway, back to the narrative. In trying to get a handle on the whole Mattiotti situation, the most surprising move was Mussolini agreeing to make the MVSN a part of the actual Italian military, complete with an oath of allegiance to the king. This was a coup because the MVSN still owed its primary loyalty to Mussolini, but also further made it a normal public institution. The black shirts were now a normal part of everyday life and not just a temporary measure of the current regime. And it also provided another assurance to the king that his position was safe with Mussolini. All in all, Benito actually played his hand well on this one. His Aventine adversaries, though? Not so much. While Mussolini was making big moves to protect himself, they were kind of stuck. They didn't want to start a civil war, 
so they didn't call for any uprising. As politicians, their main area of influence was within Parliament, which they were now boycotting. So, Mussolini just hunkered down and resolved to ride out the storm for the rest of the year, patiently undermining his opposition throughout. Towards the end of the year, he secured an agreement with his cabinet to increase the policing of government criticism, so that particular bit of oppression could be conducted within the letter of the law. However, on December 27, 1924, one of those southern opposition figures I mentioned earlier, Giovanni Amendola, published a scandalous document written by the now-disgraced Cesare Rossi. The document from Rossi accused Mussolini directly of ordering the murder and personally instigating other crimes. Previously, he had been able to maintain some measure of plausible deniability, but with the accusations coming directly from a former associate, Mussolini found himself in potential trouble again. The fascists themselves were divided. The remaining Ross were anxious about Mussolini dismissing so many of their fellows and feared for themselves. The moderates thought that now Mussolini was an obstacle and the party being accepted as legitimate by the nation. To this, Mussolini made the simple promise that he would act in true fascist style. And in that vein, he changed the rules yet again. On January 3, 1925, he stood before Parliament and declared that, indeed, crimes had been committed by the fascist movement and that he would accept full responsibility for those crimes. He then told Parliament that if anybody wanted to, they could appeal to the king and take him to the high courts. This public admission of guilt startled everyone. You don't just admit that you've committed crimes. The king didn't have a clear path of action. The same problem of leadership remained even with the admission of guilt. At this point, you might even be wishing for the king to simply assume command for a time while somebody was found. But keep in mind, Victor Emmanuel always find an excuse to take no action. So, the king again didn't do anything. Mussolini got up in front of Parliament, on the public record, and declared that he was a guilty man. He also dared them to do anything about it. After the moment had come, they didn't know what to do, and the crisis abruptly fizzled out. There would not be a new one like it. The charade of the past two years in continuing the liberal order was now past. Mussolini was dictator, and there was no mechanism to challenge him, short of the king who had already proven to prefer the fascists. I'll leave you on that depressing note for this week. Next time, join me in covering the changes to Italian society and how the state functioned now that Mussolini had secured his base of power. As always, thank you very much for listening.